I can tell you on the campaign trail, the biggest question I got was, you, you need a husband. You don't, <laughs> you don't need a job in Washington. <laughs> and, you know, when I was going to start a family and all this other stuff. I mean, like. What yeah. did you say? What, how did you respond? Well, I said, you know, if elected, I'll have 150,000 children who I will have to take care of to ensure that they have fun. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Congresswoman Terry Sewell, a graduate of Princeton, Oxford, and Harvard Law School, who represents Montgomery and Birmingham, Alabama, in the U.S. House of Representatives. And this is Veronica Escobar, a freshman Democrat from El Paso, who made history in November by becoming one of the first two Latinas elected to Congress from Texas. Wasn't Escobar's first campaign. She's been in local politics for decades, as her family can attest. When I first got into politics, my daughter was in first grade, my son was in third grade. And they're now, you know, college age. My son's about to graduate from college. And he's 22, my daughter's 20. I asked him, what what was it like? And he said, you know, you weren't there a lot, but we got used to it. And I wanted to cry because I was like, but you're supposed to say that it taught you that women can do anything and that, that it made you feel empowered that you had this mom that was doing this stuff. What do you mean you got used to it? I sat down with them for a live interview at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And we're bringing you our discussion as a special bonus episode of Women Rule. It was a fun conversation, one that spanned everything from advice on fundraising to what it means to be a woman of color working in politics in 2019. My senior thesis in college, I wrote about black women in politics. Our time has come. And that was in 1980. <clears throat> <laughs> but I interviewed Shirley Chisholm, who is the very first African-American woman to walk the halls of Congress as a part of my thesis. The question I asked her was, as between being black and a woman, which has been the biggest barrier to your life as a congressperson and to your life in general? And she looked at me and without hesitation, she said the following, and I say it too, unequivocally being a woman. Now, what does that say that 30 years later, I'm saying the exact same thing? We'll be back next week with another new episode. But first, here's my conversation with Congresswomen Terry Sewell and Veronica Escobar. So first of all, I want to talk, we've spent so much time thinking about the historic wins. You were part of that wave uh, in the 2018 election. How do you think women lawmakers can make that momentum and turn that momentum into something and to make real progress in Congress? So I I think part of the key is making sure that we support a pipeline of women. Um, the, the, The challenge for women who run for office is that often we face obstacles that men don't face. And so we we have to be candid about that. We have to address those obstacles. And when I was in local government in El Paso, Texas, the safe and secure U.S.-Mexico border, um, (laughs) I, I worked very hard at ensuring that I supported women who were running for local office made a space for those women, helped fundraise for them. It's, it, it is a challenge. And so I think part of what we do is we make sure that we've got that great pipeline, that we support each other as women, even when we disagree with one another, that we do it in a way that doesn't undermine one another. Um, and, and, you know, we saw a lot of sort of the, 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 
challenges that we face during the um, battle over the speakership. And it was out there on full display for all of America to see. And I think that, that all of us can agree that there was a double standard for Speaker Pelosi that did not exist for other uh, folks in leadership who happened to be men. And so we, we have to be honest about all of that. We have to support one another. We've got to create a pipeline. You know, I can tell you that it does make a difference having a woman's voice at the table. And I really think that it's important that we don't underestimate our own value. Um, so often, we as women have to be asked not one time, not two times, I don't know, five times, six times to run for our office, as it's said. But the reality is that we sometimes don't see ourselves in the leadership position. We see ourselves in the supporting cast. And I think that we have to start um, elevating our daughters and our sons um, to respect the fact that women's voices are important at the table no matter what. It took women becoming um, senators and sitting on the Senate Armed Services Committee before we actually took seriously uh, sexual harassment in the military. The first time we even had a, a hearing was when there was a, enough women senators sitting on that committee. Um, we had a slogan um, our, my first year in Congress, when women succeed, America succeeds. And that's really true. Well, I think one of the things a lot of people wonder is what actually happens once you get into Washington you get into Congress. So uh, I want you to take us a little bit behind the scenes, Congresswoman Escobar. You've been here more than 100 days in Washington. What has been the biggest surprise? So what happens when you go to Washington? You eat poorly and don't get exercise. Self-care is lacking. And you ruin your shoes, which and is why you, you start wearing. And you ruin your shoes. That's right, exactly. You, you know, the thing that surprised me the most was how demanding the job is. And and I've, I've worked hard all my life. I'm Anyone who knows me will tell you how hard of a worker I am. I've never worked this hard in my life. The, and, and it's it's a little bit insane. I've even wondered how, like, how this is how we govern? This is crazy. <laughs> um, but literally, like, I'll be double or triple booked, and so I'll spend 10 minutes with one group, and then run outside to the little lobby area, spend 10 minutes with another group. On then, a totally different subject, by the way. We have very hardworking people um, at the highest level of government trying to juggle a lot, um, and I, I'm, I'm impressed at the incredible women who've paved the way. Congresswoman, you've been here a, a little bit longer in Washington. There's been a lot of talk about the change in the schedule, the change because of this freshman class and so many women and so many mothers. What do you think has been the biggest change that you've seen so far this Congress? Well, I have to say, I came in in 2010, and it was a reverse kind of a wave in 2010. I was one of nine Democratic freshmen to 87 um, Republican freshmen. And so the biggest change for me is just being in the majority. <laughs> See, I didn't know how great it was to be in the majority. <laughs> so so um, that's the biggest change for me. And having so many wonderfully diverse women. Like, at the end of the day, I love the fact that we're not all monolithic. Yes, we may all be Democrats, but we are um, across the spectrum. We have diff uh, such diverse backgrounds from those in the military, CIA, FBI, I'm running businesses, being a judge, you know, it's just amazingly diverse uh, group of women, both uh, ethnically, um, but also in our, in our political thought and in our careers. And it's just, 
it's just a great pleasure to have so much support. I want to ask you, you mentioned before, oftentimes women have to be asked several times, mm. you know, to run, right? It's never me or you're not qualified enough. You kind of go into different jobs. I want to talk to both of you kind of about your journey, about what made you decide to run for office and run for this office. Well, you know, I grew up in uh, my district. So my district is Alabama's 7th district. It's the Civil Rights District of America, really. It's Birmingham. It's Montgomery. It's my hometown of Selma. I also have Tuscaloosa, Roll Tide, up in my district. So um, we have a little bit of everything in my district. But I grew up in this district. And the last time I lived and worked in Washington prior to getting elected in 2010, I was an intern for my member of Congress who held this exact seat. His name was Richard Shelby. He was a Democrat back then. He's now a U.S. Senator. But I interned for him for three summers. And I have to tell you, that was very informative for me. There was one thing I realized, uh, watching him do the job, it was very demanding. But I was like, I could do that job. <laughs> Maybe he'll do it better. Um, but the second thing I remember thinking when I left my internship, um, after three summers, we were still, still, still trying to get the same bills and the same projects passed. And so I remember walking away from Washington thinking, boy, Washington takes a long time to make a dent. <laughs> Maybe that's not the quickest way we can make change. So you flash forward 20 plus years later, and now I have a full circle moment. I'm the member of Congress representing my home district. And frankly, back then, it was the poorest district with the highest unemployment, with the highest dropout rate, with the highest infant mortality rate. And so people ask me why I talk fast, move fast. That's because um, generations of folks in my district have grown up in poverty. Median income for a family of four is $34,000. This is in 2019. And so, but I got out and I got a chance to go to Princeton and Oxford, Harvard Law School. But who I am is because of that community in Selma, Alabama. So when I think about why I ran, it's pretty easy. I ran because I want the same opportunities that I've had in this great country for everyone in my district. I know what's possible from my district with resources and opportunities. You know, I think that that was my motivating factor, was just realizing, you know, I kind of woke up one day and I'm 40 years old and the person I went to law school with is running for president of the United States, Barack Obama, and I'm like, oh my God, it's our turn to lead. <laughs> and you know, you can be safely ensconced in your corner office um, as a law partner, and it was quite nice. I love that paycheck. <laughs> but what I'm doing now, there's no more rewarding, more, there's not a bigger reward for me than when government does work uh, along with communities, and we serve as a catalyst um, to invest in communities and really help communities um, grow and flourish. I, I, so I, ser I was serving in local government, loved local government because things move fairly quickly and you can see the fruits of your labor <laughs> fairly soon um, and people have to get along, people have to work together. It was a good environment for me. And I never thought I would run for Congress. I had no interest, I had no desire. But when my good friend uh, Bethel O'Rourke decided to uh, run against Ted Cruz, th the seat was going to be open. And it, when I ran for local government, I was motivated by a lot of what Terry just described. El Paso, Texas, incredible, um, beautiful, magical, safe, secure uh, community <laughs> right on this international border, this place where people take care of each other. And we had, I think, not advanced in a way that I wanted us to, that many of us wanted to. So I ran for local government. We did lots of great work. And when Beto decided to run for Senate, 
I had already felt just incredible unease and distress about the Trump administration, to be honest. Um, I, I don't know that I would have run for Congress had it not been for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. But I felt very much like communities like mine were under attack. I felt that El Paso had a target on her back. I felt that my people had targets on our back. We were being so maligned, and there was something very dangerous, very ugly, and very frightening happening in Washington, D.C. when it came to the way that we are talking about immigrants, the way we are talking about the border. Instead of seeing us as a point of opportunity, which we are, and instead of seeing us for who we are, for us, El Paso is the new El Ellis Island. And I felt that with the vacancy, we needed someone willing to step up to the challenge of fighting back. Well, I want to talk a little bit about being in Washington, what's been happening. Obviously, Democrats uh, are now doing a lot of investigations, a lot of uh, letters and subpoenas and things We're like doing that. A lot of legislating, well, too. So I, but I want, to, okay. I want to ask about that. <laughs> I, I, that's what I want to ask about, actually, is, you know, are you at all worried that the investigations are kind of become, could subsume any other victories that you might have. It's, you know, the people back home are thinking, I have real issues, and yes, the investigations are important, but what's happening on things that matter to me? It's a balance. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We've been devoid for the last two years of our oversight responsibilities. So you're seeing us rev up in a way that Congress should have all along been, you know, investigating, frankly. Um, but to me, the clear mandate of the House Democratic majority was for us to legislate, for us to make sure people have a livable wage, to make sure that we're providing stability to the Affordable Care Act, which is not working the way it was intended to work because of a whole host of reasons. So I think that, that the American people fully expect us to know how to balance things. And, and ultimately, they want us to, to do the things that will affect their day in and day out life. They asked me about Social Security and Medicare and what am I doing to like shore up uh, the Medicare um, fund so that it's there for future generations and Social Security. Like they, they're really more concerned about what are you doing to help my day in and day out life. And I think that we have to be mindful of that as lawmakers. You know, I think the, the freshmen especially are keenly aware of how our constituents are watching to see whether whether we can deliver on legislation. And, you know, knocking on doors in this race, person after person would tell me that they feel that Washington is broken and too divided. Um, and so for those of us who are freshmen, we feel, I think, it's, it's like a test for us, especially. We are doing the work of legislating, and, and we're kind of like screaming from the rooftops about what we've gotten done in less than 100 days. It's incredibly impressive, but there's just a lot to pay attention to for the American public. I want to take a step back from kind of the politics to what we talk a lot about on this podcast, which is talking about women and their decision to run and what might hold them back. One thing that comes up a lot is the scrutiny that we all face as women about what we wear, our attire, how we do our hair. Uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in this last election on the ground with women talking about all the feedback, and I'll say that feedback with air quotes for the podcast that they get. Um, <laughs> How do you handle that? Is, do you have stories where you know, you've gotten feedback that is, is pretty hard to deal with? Well, it'd be nice to be a guy and only have to bring a couple shirts and four different ties. <laughs> <laughs> the uniform. Um, yes, the uniform. I have to say, whenever I am asked this question about being a woman in politics, 
I hearken back to my senior thesis in college. I wrote about black women in politics. Our time has come. And that was in 1980. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> Our time really has come now. <laughs> but I interviewed Shirley Chisholm, who is the very first African-American woman to walk the halls of Congress as a part of my thesis. She had just uh, retired from Congress about, you know, say of seven years and was teaching at Mount Holyoke College. The question I asked her was, as between being black and a woman, which has been the biggest barrier to your life as a congressperson and to your life in general? And she looked at me and without hesitation, she said the following, and I say it too, unequivocally being a woman. Now, what does that say that 30 years later, I'm saying the exact same thing, that as between being African-American and being a woman, that the biggest barrier, the biggest obstacle, the biggest challenge is being a woman. Now, some of that is, you know, sometimes we as women can be our worst enemies. Um, you know, we, we look in the mirror and we, we, we see the pimple. We, we don't see the president. And we don't see, you know, like what if men look in the mirror and they see president and governor and senator. And we look in the mirror and we see pimples and pimples and gotta get over that. We have to, we, we have, sometimes we're our worst enemies. And I can tell you on the campaign trail, the biggest question I got was, you, you need a husband. You don't, <laughs> you don't need a job in Washington. <laughs> I had a lot of folks who were quite concerned about my personal life, you know? <laughs> and you know when I was going to start a family and all this other stuff. I mean, like, what yeah. did you say? What? How did you respond? Well, I said, you know, if elected, I'll have 150,000 children who I will have to take care of to ensure that they have, <laughs> you know, the same opportunities that I've had in life. And they kind of smiling. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> And I also think that it's important we as women have to have to have to walk it and talk it. So I had a I had a completely woman staff. And so I can remember going out on going to visit churches and talking to folks and these um, endorsement conferences, which, which were often held at night and often uh, rural places because I represent Selma and some rural communities around there. So driving from Birmingham to these places at night and since my political director was also a woman and I woman. Um, we would three women would be going to the car after the endorsement conference at 9:30 at night and you know the inevitably the person who was um, you know uh, leading the group was a man and he would walk and he would go, oh my god how will you guys get back to Birmingham <laughs> and we're like uh, you see the Subaru in front of me like, I think we're gonna be okay <laughs> what if you get a flat tire and here I am going I got triple-a and uh, what I love to do is I think all of us have stories in which and I think that the person was be he was being paternalistic but he didn't even know he was being paternalistic um, and so at some point you can either confront that person and or you can just chalk it up, make them laugh, and but at the same time really say, you know, thank you for caring about me, but really I got this. Right. And so I, I think that we, as more women have this job, as young boys and young women see us in this job, more and more of us, that it will not become as novel as it is right now but rather it will become the norm. And that's our hope. The hope is that each one teaches one, that we inspire another generation of women to literally run for Congress, to run for judge, to, you know, to, to be an astronaut, to be whatever they want to be, a firefighter, warfighter, hello, we can do it all. But you gotta see it to believe it and touch it and feel it. 
so there, there definitely is a double standard. I mean, you just heard Terry talk about it, and there is a judgment of women that does not exist for men. It, in, and in politics, it can be very cruel. I, I remember I, st I, I stopped reading a certain New York Times columnist who was a woman, who is a woman, because week after week, Sunday after Sunday, during um, the presidential campaign, her criticisms of Hillary Clinton always mentioned a pantsuit or what Hillary Clinton was wearing. And it so got under my skin that you can be critical of policy, you can be critical of performance on the campaign trail. As a woman, we, the, the, we have to make sure that we are not falling into the traps that have been set for all of us. So, um, like, I, I just, I, I refuse to even read anything by that columnist because I'm still angry about it, <laughs> clearly. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I will tell you there, there are additional obstacles that come with being a woman in politics that have nothing to do with how we're judged, um, and it has to do with kind of our, our private life. For women mothers, as a, as a mother, there's a self-imposed guilt that I have felt being in public life about not being there when my kids were little. And that this was just local office. I wasn't flying from West Texas to uh, Washington, DC. It is very hard for a mother to run for office, even harder to run for Congress. And if you've got little kids, you are sacrificing a lot. And even in the most equitable partnership, even in a marriage where, you know, they, I mean, it's never 50-50, but um, <laughs> even where you believe it's 50-50 and you tell yourself it's 50-50, um, you know, the, the mother still shoulders the primary responsibility of child rearing. Yes. And I had an interesting conversation with my son um, fairly recently. I asked him, you know, what was it like? You know, you, you, I mean, when I first got into politics, my daughter was in first grade, my son was in third grade. And they're now, you know, college age. My son's about to graduate from college. And he's 22, my daughter's 20. I asked him, what, what was it like? And he said, you know, you weren't there a lot, but we got used to it. And I wanted to cry because I was like, but you're supposed to say that it taught you that women can do anything and, and that, that it made you feel empowered that you had this mom that was doing this stuff. What do you mean you got used to it? So I just, it, 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 like, I, it broke my heart. But men don't feel that way, right? And so it's, there, are, there are a whole host of obstacles that we face. I want to, we're quickly running out of time, but I have two questions left. And one is the, on the practical hurdles that women often face. And we talk about this a ton, and a lot of candidates talk about it. A lot of women come up to me, talk about whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they want to start a business, whether they're, and it's raising money. Yes. Raising money capital. for access. women and access to capital is very difficult because it's not about necessarily how you look, but it's about your networks. It's about the com comfort and the ability to pick up that phone a thousand times and get told no a lot. How did you all deal with this? I'll start with you, uh, Congresswoman Escobar. Uh, you know, your first race. So uh, prior congressional races were $250,000 in El Paso. This one was almost $2 million. You know, I mean, the, uh, there's no reason for that. And my biggest fear was my inability to raise money. And it's what everyone from D.C. was like, can you raise the money? Can you raise the money? And the, it's, it's particularly hard, I think, for women of color 
and for women from working class families and middle class families, you start thinking in terms of donors. Who can I call? Who can double max? Who can write either a $2,700 check to max out or a 54? That's how we're trained, right? During congressional races. I felt badly asking family members for a hundred bucks, you know, because that's a big check to write in my community. $500 is a big check. And I had folks from the outside saying, I want you to put together a list of everybody that, that, that you have in your circle that will double max. Uh, nobody. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and, and so it's, it, and then I had to quit my job in order to run. So as it was, my family was sacrificing significantly. Had two kids in college. Um, you know, we, we had to refinance our home. It, it was, in, it was crazy. So it's so, the path is so much easier for people with access to money. People who have run in circles that are wealthy. And, and, and that's why you see the same type of people over and over again in positions of power. Because power begets power. And so when, when you have outsiders, people who are from working class families, middle class families, or people who don't have access to money, it's a harder haul. That's the unfortunate part of politics yeah. is the money. It's, yes, it's the message. Yes, it's the hard work. No doubt. But the money plays a, a very disconcerting role. Obviously, being an incumbent makes it a lot easier. <laughs> That's what I learned. But, <laughs> so, so, but um, so the best advice that was given to me, the very best advice, because I think we as women, we raise money for Girl Scouts, for the museum, for the play, for the PTA. I mean, it's not as if we don't raise money. We raise money for others. Right? We raise it for others, for worthwhile projects. One of the things about politics that I thought was the hardest for me, when you grow up self-reliant, or you think you're self-reliant, the hard part was asking for help. Yep. And everywhere I turn, I was asking someone to vote for me, asking someone to pay for, you know, to, um, to, to contribute to my campaign, asking, 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 always asking for help. That's the hardest part about it, in my opinion. But what I was told, I'll never forget this, and it was Kirsten Gillibrand. She and I were baby lawyers together in New York City, and so I don't really know her as Kirsten. I know her nickname, but she knows mine, so whoop. Anyway, so... <laughs> right. um, we'll ask you afterwards. <laughs> so, but what Kirsten said to me, she said, Terry, do you really believe that you're the very best person to represent uh, the 7th Congressional District? I said, yes. She said, do you think that you can represent the 7th? I'm like, I am the 7th Congressional District. I, I grew up in this district. She goes, exactly. She goes, does, does the 7th Congressional District deserve to have the best leadership? Oh, absolutely. Blah, 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 blah. And she goes, so you're really not asking the person on the other line for Terry. You're asking for all of those children. You love to talk about how seeing Mae Jemison in your high school class taught you, made you aspire to more. So think about all of those faces. And you put those faces up on the call time wall. And you are not asking for Terry Sewell. You're asking that the poorest district in the state of Alabama has the very best representation it can possibly have, and that happens to be you. But you're asking on behalf of the people that you want to represent. I'm like, oh my God. So once I made that shift, it became easier to pick up the phone and call my friends at Princeton. That's what y'all did. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so I think that the practical advice I had was that we ask for what we believe in. And if you really believe in your heart, which you have to in order to get up every day for two years prior to the election or a year and a half to give your all, to quit your job, to do, 
you, you have got to believe in yourself. I want to ask you both for one piece of practical advice to the women and the men here that are looking to lead. What can they do? Start right away. Do whatever it is that's right in front of you that is most urgent and that gives you passion. I was a volunteer for other candidates for a decade before I ever thought about running myself for office. But your, your city council, your school board, and candidates need your help. It gives you great experience. We need your leadership. I think the best advice I have came from my mom, who was the first African-American woman to be on the city council in Selma. And it was define yourself for yourself and be authentically you. And I think that that says it all, because at the end of the day, the world will define you by your color, your race, your socioeconomic status, your blah, 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 what schools you went to. You'll be defined by the outside world. So you have got to define yourself for yourself and be authentically you. You can only be you in this job, whatever job that you have. But I think that it's important. We have to define ourselves for ourselves so society won't define us. All right, well, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you both so much for joining me. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. Special thanks to Edgar Estrada and the Politico Live team for all their help in Austin. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.